Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Dr. Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory with this month's installment of the ISA podcast series. This series is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners helping you to keep up to date with developments in the arboricultural industry. Today's talk is by Dr. Ken James, a research engineer at NSPEC in Australia. Dr. James investigates tree biomechanics using dynamic structural methods. This podcast features Dr. James' talk on applied biomechanics and dynamics in trees. It was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia in July 2011. Thank you everybody and uh, um, welcome to my session and listening to Francis, I was drifting off in the dulcet tones of the um, violin and suddenly realised that the physics that I'm about to present are identical to the physics that Francis was presenting. And I'm going to be talking about dynamics in trees and we'll be talking about resonance, harmonics and particularly damping which was the key in uh, Francis's talk and is the key in mine. So if there's one word that's going to come out of this is damping. So my presentation this morning is to look at the research on tree dynamics and wind, look at the differences between statics and dynamics the static tree pulling test has been around for a number of years. I looked at the dynamic cases. I looked at trees and branches. And the particular focus out of that is the damping, which I term mass damping, of branches. I'm going to have a brief look at the current research and hopefully have a look at where we are now and what's happening for the future. Some of the research questions I found most profound to be the simplest. And these are some of the research questions that I asked at the beginning of my studies. What are the wind loads on trees during storms? Good question. Are dynamic analysis better than static methods to describe what's happening with the trees? How do branches affect the or influence the dynamic response of trees? How does tree shape and size influence the wind loads. This comes from pruning. We've heard about topping and all the different pruning methods, so that's sort of summarising that. And can, in fact, a dynamic model be used to describe the tree's response in the wind? One of the things I think where I got a little bit further than other approaches is that my research method was to measure the tree's response. So I was lucky enough to win a uh, a grant from the tree fund, I built some instruments which were new in arboriculture but in engineering they were fairly standard sorts of instruments and from that we measured the tree response and it didn't really match the scientific literature. 
So I went back and had a look at it. And from that, learned to trust the data and also to admit that I understood very little about the tree and to try and see what was actually happening. Now, this is the situation that I'm studying. And I like to show the video, because we're dealing with dynamics, it's very difficult to show the dynamics that I'm studying with a two-dimensional PowerPoint presentation. So some of the things that I'd like you to look at there is the tree is not swaying backwards and forwards. It's certainly swaying, but it doesn't sway back towards the wind. The trees that I deal with don't have a central trunk and a little bit of foliage. They've got this two major parts of the canopy doing different things. And the other thing I'd like you to notice is the canopy isn't moving like a sail. The canopy is moving as a collection of branches and all the branches are doing their individual things. Now that's pretty obvious now, but when I started I had these other things in my head and didn't really see that. So the data taught me to look fairly carefully at those things. And when will this tree fail? It will fail when the loads exceed the strength. So it's a balance. It's not how strong is the tree or how big is the load, it's a combination of those two. And failure will occur when the load is greater than the strength of the structure. And the biggest load on trees is wind, which is dynamic, and hence my, the focus of my studies. So that balance between structural failure and loads is fairly simple. When the load exceeds the strength, we have failure. Now, we often see pictures of trees falling over in winds and smashing cars and buildings, but equally, I'm sure you've all seen a crane fall over and a crane is quite stable until the load exceeds the strength, holding strength. And I use that because this is the focus of my current research is the overturning about the base of the tree. So it's, everything's happening down the base and not up the top. So the significance of the research is we want to assess the risks of wind failure or tree failures, particularly in urban areas. And the issue of liability is coming more and more uh, a factor in decision making. I would say, unfortunately, because um, I'm now working with a commercial company after spending many years at Melbourne University doing research, I'm continuing that with NSPEC. And some councils only last week have ordered the removal of some significant trees um, and there's no reason for it other than there's a scare campaign and they're worried about the liability issues. One of the things that's uh, an outcome of this work is I haven't been able to point at a tree and predict failure but what we have been able to do is identify stable trees and that's um, some of the no data in the um, data sets has proved valuable because we can say, look, that tree is not rotating the root pad, it's not moving like these other ones, and we can say it's stable under the current uh, conditions that we're monitoring it, and we can then put resources into the trees that we identify are moving. Now, that's not saying we're at the failure prediction, uh, it's not even saying they're the high-risk trees because we hasn't, haven't actually got failure yet, but we think we're moving in that direction. Things like pruning techniques, if I've got time I'll show you some uh, data from pruning techniques which are a little bit surprising. The whole work I'm doing appears to be preserving trees, which was a bit of a, um, an unexpected outcome. 
I've been doing this now for about 15 years and I'm yet to measure or monitor or even see when it, no tree in any of my studies has fallen over and it's extremely difficult to find and predict. What it does do though is say these trees that are identified as hazards which I've been called out to, we've pulled them, we've tested them, I've said look there's nothing in the data that suggests they're at risk and those trees still stand. So many of the trees that were going to come out are still standing and it's really a technique that can add to the visual techniques of assessment that arborists use now to provide some data to go on file to say this is the management decision based on this data and if it did go to court, uh, that data can be presented in court. So I'm fairly particular about getting data that's verifiable, accurate and could be um, justified in a legal situation. The other outcome, which I'll show a video, is uh, to do with safety, uh, property and climbers and particularly looking at dampening effects. Now Francis was talking about fungi and trees and seemed to go off a little bit of a tangent with violins but you can see the application. I've used this slide to try and make a point that size is a very important factor in dynamics and size matters. We have an appreciation of the human um, shape and size so we can understand that. So I'm going to start with something that we inherently feel uh, related to humans then I'm going to try and show the application in trees because the same physics happens with dynamics in trees. If we divide, if we want to see how slender a tree is, we divide the height by the diameter to get a slenderness ratio. We can also that do that with the human body. If we divide the height of a small child and his diameter with the large person, we can put them on the same scale. And there's that scale of a human shape from birth through to adult maturity. And you can see that if we look at the proportions of the human body, the young human is not a scaled up version of the old human and the proportions change through the developmental process and there's a physical reason for that. So this does occur in all natural things. As we get hot, larger, we go from a cat to a dog to a horse to a elephant. They don't just scale up, they have to get thicker in proportion to their size. So the message I'm trying to get is old is not a scaled up version of it young. I've divided trees roughly into four groups. Small, forest trees, urban trees or shade trees or open grown trees, doesn't really have a definition but they're the trees we deal with in this society, and large trees, very big trees. And looking at the dynamics of each of those is very different and that's really the theme of my presentation this morning, what I found from my dynamics research and the research in the literature. What's the difference between small forest trees, medium and large trees? What's the, I've given this presentation many times into foresters and to try and make a point. What's the difference between a forest and the tree? And my answer is branches and it's the damping of branches. So I'm going to start with the biggest. Biggest in the world is an American tree. I do expect arguments over this. Anyway, let's, let's start with the giant sequoia. Uh, this is General Sherman. 
What do big trees have that small trees don't? They are massive. And when we look at dynamics, one of the things about mass is there are inertial forces. Now, these are not present in a static test. An inertial force might be if you're driving along the road at 100 miles an hour, 100 kilometres an hour, and you suddenly turn a corner, you, go one, you keep going in your direction, the car goes, so you fall sideways. So that's an inertial force, that's a dynamic force, and doesn't happen in statics. Static tests cannot find this. In one of the things I, I mentioned yesterday and I also emphasise is to measure things. How big is a giant redwood? Now, a lot of what I present is not my data, it's referenced data. And this is from uh, a very eminent Dr. Carl Nicholas's book published in 1992. I don't imagine it's correct today, but these are some figures and gives you an idea. And we're looking at a chunk of about 600 tonnes of tree. It also has a slenderness ratio based on his figures of 10 or 10.5. I'm going to go back to that figure, so I'll just mention them now. Now, what happens when the wind hits that tree? If you want to have a look at scale, there's a person down the bottom there. These are very big trees. And what happens when the wind hits one of those trees is it hits a massive object and the object cannot respond because of its mass and it will gradually respond. Like in large buildings, the wind hits part of the tree and then another part of the tree and then another part of the tree. So the response of this tree is as if it was static. So it doesn't have much di dynamic effect. Welcome to Australia. We're now in Sydney and we would claim the largest tree in the world is a eucalyptus regnans, the king of trees. Oops, sorry. And just recently a 101 metre giant was found in Tasmania and we're in Sydney and some of these eucalyptus redgen stands are located down in Victoria and Tasmania. And equally, this is probably the largest angiosperm in the world, the um, sequoia or Douglas fir is probably the largest gymnosperm in the world. Okay, let's go to the other extreme and look at small trees. When we're looking at wind impacting on small trees, by far the largest proportion of forces is caused by drag on the leaves. So the drag forces, the dynamic forces of drag in winds, are by far the largest and dominating forces. There's not much mass in the branches, so the, any damping effect of the branches, the mass damping effect, just isn't present. The dynamic wind forces on the small trees, though, therefore, are quite different from the large trees, and we cannot use the small trees in dynamics and automatically scale up the results. Now, over the years, I'm becoming more confident in expressing that. I'm not saying the work on small trees is wrong, but you can't automatically scale up the results. When we're looking at small trees, the leaf drag is by far the most dominant force and what that means is the more wind, the more drag. So we get a proportional response, and it's a linear response, and it becomes almost constant. And we know we've got dynamic wind, and we do get the shutter and waves and vortices performing, but it's as if it's constant, called quasi-static. And I mentioned the word, referring back to um, Francis's talk, there's no harmonics, there's no resonance occurring, 
Uh, and this doesn't happen with trees, like it does in a violin, which is what they're looking for. And just to emphasise that point, if we're looking for drag and small trees, we've had many studies in wind tunnels. We've taken trees into wind tunnels. Wind tunnels are fantastic where they've got uniform airflow and looking at the drag coefficients over aerofoils or shapes or cars or cyclists. And if anybody hasn't heard, Cadell Evans won the Tour de France. <laughs> and you see their helmets. So this is very, very good technology. Does it apply to trees? It certainly is in small trees. And there's an image from a 2003 wind effects on tree conference in Germany and on the front cover is an aerodynamic tree with streamlined air coming around it. And what I'll say about that diagram is built into that are many assumptions. They've assumed that we've got drag coefficients of trees and uniformity. And in fact it's not wrong and it does happen. And there's an image of a tree that's in a windy environment in perfect equilibrium and harmony with its environment and it's bent nearly double because it's a very windy environment. But it's a small tree and there's not much dynamics happening to it. Here is a um, report from a, a scientific paper by Rudnicki in 2007. They took a tree into wind tunnel. They upped the wind to look at the drag coefficients and what was the effect of pruning. The tree was considered from a structural point of view. I put the word bluff body with a question mark in there because in wind engineering we deal with bluff bodies, which are things like solid objects, buildings, aerofoils with shape factors and all that sort of thing. And sometimes researchers take a bluff body and put holes in, into it with porosity to simulate a tree. Now there's a report from Sands 2003 where they used a 135th scale model of a poplar in a wind tunnel, and it was a two-dimensional bluff body and to represent that it, there was uh, some porosity in the uh, canopy, they drilled holes in it. And they, they were the results, very good results for that model, with drag coefficients being quoted. So if somebody went to the literature to find the drag coefficient of a populous plant and quoted a drag coefficient of 1.5 or 1.2, depending on the speed, that would be in the literature and quite scientifically valid. My question, can we scale those results up? Now we look at forestry, and there's quite a lot of wind research on forestry, and there are predictions of what speed, wind speed, will cause damage. Forestry deals with plantations of trees and predicts critical wind speeds at which wind damage will occur, and the wind damage will be quoted as some percentage of the forest. They don't identify the individual tree that will fail. When we look at the forest, we're looking at trees grown as so many thousand stems per hectare, all in nice row straight lines. On the left-hand side is a North American conifer. On the right-hand side is an Australian eucalypt plantation. So it doesn't really matter what species of tree we're dealing with, grown in plantation. What we have there is a tall column. Most of the mass is in the centre of the tree. The dynamic response of that mass will be as a pole oscillating backwards and forwards with a harmonic resonance. It will have a natural frequency. In the time domain on the right-hand side, uh, you can see if we pull that and pluck it, 
we get a very similar signal to what Francis was showing on the sound resonance in Stradivarius violins. We can do a spectrum analysis of that, which is down the bottom, and he had exactly the same image of the frequencies in a violin, and you get a peak indicating that these trees have a natural frequency. If you look at the literature, you will find the natural frequency of Norway spruce is such and such and with these predictors. So trees have a natural frequency in the literature in these scientific papers. But what's missing there? And what has to happen for natural frequency to occur is no damping, very little damping. The trees I've been associated with, and I believe what the ISA is mainly looking at, is trees in cities. What's the difference between all the trees I've shown now and the trees we deal with? Branches, it's really simple. <laughs> and what I've been looking at are trees in urban environments subject to wind where most of the mass is in the branches. And what happens is the branches do their dance backwards and forwards almost in the complete reverse of what a Stradivarius violin does. A Stradivarius violin, any musical instrument, is looking for resonance, and I believe these trees have evolved a natural mechanism to prevent that happening so they don't get a natural sway up and the damping is part of their environmental adaptations. So the branch dynamics in our urban trees, I'll give a, a rough guess of a limit, it has to be about six metres, probably 10 metres, before this effect comes into action and then goes up to around about whatever trees grow to, 40, 50, 60 metres and above. But the branch dynamics in those sorts of trees is dominant in the response. Drag is still there, all those other dynamic forces are still there, but the branch dynamics is dominant. So the branches provide a damping and prevent large sways occurring. In the studies I've published this uh, work and this is the sort of tree that we've been looking at and we look at the response down at the base of the tree, the overturning wind forces and we try and do a resonant uh, analysis of it. We do get some sort of resonance but it's, it's very, very low. It's not a peak like uh, we would expect and we get really chaotic signals which are very difficult to analyse. But basically the answer is there is no harmonic resonance. It's sort of looking for the null hypothesis. Is there a resonance? No, there's not. And to illustrate that, just to try and give you a visual picture of that, looking at a eucalypt blowing in the wind, I took a video to see if the, is the canopy swaying together or not. I then played the same image at three times the speed and I think you can see it probably more clearly at three times the speed than you can singly. I'm just turning my sound down there. So that's exactly the same footage side by side. In real time, it's not quite as obvious to see, but in three times you can see the wind gust coming through. It hits part of the canopy first and then goes through and the, the masses don't oscillate together. They oscillate as individual masses and basically they do a dance out of tune. So the trees are doing the complete opposite to what the violin's doing. The other thing that I found is that the form is very important, not the species. So there is a Monterey pine and a Pinus radiata plantation 
And uh, many years ago, I was surprised to find that they were exactly the same tree. They're both Pinus radiata. And one can grow with branches or one can grow in a plantation. So it, it's not the species that's important in this. So just in summary of that, with the four different categories of trees that I've nominated, the dynamic response in small trees is dominated with drag. The dynamic response in forest plantations is dominated as a pole. It does have our harmonics and very little um, damping, so it does, they do get sway up. And it's well known that if you cut the edge trees off a forest and leave the uh, trees that were previously inside exposed, they, some of them can't even stand up under their own uh, weight because of their high slenderness and they are much more susceptible to wind throw. The two trees in the urban environment, I tried to put a conifer and a uh, non-conifer, X-current and D-current tree there. Both exhibit branches and that's what we're dealing with in the ISA and with urban environments. And perhaps that's why the research I've done has come up with the identification of the branches and why has, I often ask the question, why am I coming out with these results and it's not in the literature? And I think because the data set that has been used in other studies has been small trees or plantation trees and they've missed the significance of branches and even with the large trees. This can be often seen when you remove the branches so that there's two identical oricarias, they're taken in Melbourne. This, an, a homeowner decided to lop all the branches off and if you look very carefully, there's a rope holding that down and the trunk became so lively that they had to hold it back and uh, go get an expert in the next day and, and cut that down. They couldn't do it themselves. And what that shows is that the branches are making a stable structure, remove them and you've got a pole that is very unstable. The other significant thing to look for is the slenderness ratio in the dynamic effect. And a tall slender object will oscillate much more than a short squat object. If we look at slenderness, it's really the height divided the, by, the, by the diameter. So I drew some of the trees. The, the five trees in the left-hand side are uh, meant to represent a, a, a pine tree, a, uh, an X-current tree, a D-current tree, uh, there's an, a large agathus, a palm tree, and a tall slender tree. I wanted to see if this slenderness thing was there. I've drawn the giant sequoia on the graph and also some work by, again, Rudnicki on some plantation trees, lodgepole pine, that comes from a reference in 2001, and he was dealing with roughly 10 to 15 metre high plantation trees. If I now draw these as I use that human, I went from real humans to do, doing their slenderness ratio, watch what happens with the slenderness ratio. I'm now going to divide the height by the diameter of each of those trees, and you then look at their dynamic responses much more. And what's the most stable tree of them all? The giant sequoia at 10. And it's a survivor, it's 2,000 years old. It sort of makes sense. The most slender tree in my study was a Italian cypress, around about 70. And that's, to me, very interesting to study. The Lodgepole pines from Rudnicki, the reason I use that, it's the largest I've found in the literature, go up to 160 to 1. 
What would happen with those trees is they wouldn't stand up by themselves. They would fall over under their own weight. And the limits of stability uh, published, Mafic published the limit of about 50 to 1. The, I've seen many trees since then that can exceed that. And the limit of stability from that reference, Slodokakum Novak, is around about 90 to 1. And that comes from forestry work. So there's some sort of limits there. And you get a stable and an unstable tree around based on its slenderness. So looking at the plantation trees, they were 15 metres high. These were the ex extreme ones. They were 160 maximum. The dynamic solution was they were like a vibrating pole. If you read that paper and take the results of it, which they have done in predicting wind damage in forestry, there are um, computer programs called Gales 3, H-Wind, WindFirm, and they are used in forestry to predict wind throw, but the data is based on that data set of trees. So can we use that in urban forestry? That's the question I'll pose. And what's missing there are branches. So the research I did, I partnered up with Brian Kane some years ago, which has been very productive. Uh, we won a research grant, we built some instruments and we started measuring the movement of wind, or movement of trees in wind. Those two instruments sit on the side of the tree, each acts individually and we get the response in one direction, let's say the east-west and then the north-south direction. We can plot those together and get the combination, which is very interesting. And that's the sort of image that we come up with, which I call the ball of string, which clearly shows, in this case on the oricaria, when the wind blows, it moves downwind, it does sway, it does a nice little dance in the wind, but it certainly doesn't go back towards the wind in its sway process. So here's a little video of um, a eucalyptus grandis. This is outside um, Burnley College, part of Melbourne University, where I used to work. And... This is some of the data coming out of that instrument. This is raw, unprocessed data. You can see the left and right sensor here, the north, south, east, west. It's not until you put the two together that you start seeing the movement and motion of all those branches and those forces come down through the trunk and that's what we're measuring. There's the zero point where the, um, if the wind wasn't blowing, the, the sensors would record zero. And we measure it 20 times a second, so we get the dynamic response. And I can show many trees. Uh, a palm tree, what happens with a palm tree? The centre is, um, this one does go back towards the wind, but it doesn't just go backwards and forwards, it does large looping motions. And that's the results of half an hour of data. I took a video of this. I've taken many videos and I get thoroughly bored watching it, so I speed it up. And it's not until you speed it up, which was almost by accident, that you start seeing a better response. I put a reference point on the video screen just to see what was happening. And that visually is a representation of that same motion over at the side there. So the palm tree has a much more flexible response, but as somebody pointed out, it still has the mass damping of the fronds and it is fairly well damp, but not nearly as well damped as the other. And, we, and palm trees are a, a different tree. Maybe I shouldn't use the word tree. So these are the trees in my study. It goes from a palm tree through a slender tree to a X-current and a D-current tree. 
and I've published this and I can provide wind load data on trees for different species if that was worth while, if people wanted to use that. Is it worthwhile? We looked at pruning a tree and we got a eucalyptus tereticornis and thank you to Martin Norris, uh, this is in Sale in Victoria and I'd have to report on one day a young schoolgirl school walked past in a group and abused us for damaging the tree. Save the trees. And we said, good on you, good on you. <laughs> because the council had earmarked these two trees for removal because they were extending the swimming pool, as you can see in the background. So Martin was good enough to tell me and we had the opportunity to do some destructive work on them, which we didn't like doing, but they were going anyway. So... Um, we thought that was quite a positive response. So what we thought, put the sensors on a tree and wait for a wind to blow, then remove 20% of the canopy by thinning, which is that. So I'll just jump backwards and forwards between those two slides. That's a before and after. Then wait for another wind. Now you can discuss with Martin Norris the 20%. <laughs> He's the arborist and I'm the engineer. <laughs> but... In fairness, uh, we wanted an extreme example. We didn't want to just do this a bit. So it was a good chance to see what's the difference in wind loading between this and this. And we have hundreds of hours of data. I have been criticised in some of my papers in review for not doing enough replicates. One replicate. No, we can't publish that. But I have hundreds and hundreds of hours of data on the one tree. Engineers don't build a hundred bridges and average them out and choose the strongest. They build one bridge and put hundreds and hundreds of hours of analysis into the one structure. So it's a different... I see it as if there was the tree, there are some scientists approaching it from one direction and others I approach it from this direction. We're still looking at the tree and we're still doing something and it's still valid, but I don't replicate the trees necessarily, but I replicate the process. So the analysis, I've got hundreds of, hundreds of hours of this data. And a lot of it's contradictory. It is actually contradicting everything I say. And here's an example of three wind gusts, three identical wind gusts, and three completely different tree responses. How can I present this? I actually have, have to present the contradiction. I don't try and explain it. I, I can explain it, but I don't try and hide it. I don't average it out. And what is happening here? Three similar wind gusts come along and the tree responds three different ways. How can that be? And I think you have to have a dynamic answer, not a static answer. So I'm known for doing a dance on stage so what I think is happening with this is the wind does sway in the wind, in the wind for sure, but it doesn't sway backwards and forwards. It goes from this position to this position. And there comes a time when the tree is swaying and the wind gust comes along and the wind gust hits the tree as it's swaying this way and you get no response. There's another time when the tree is swaying and the gust comes along and helps the tree on its way and you get a large response, and that's a dynamic, in dynamics it's called a phase relationship. And the tree isn't just a whole canopy, it consists of branches, and some branches are doing this and others are getting pushed, and it's not really a consistent response. So the data says that all the time on all the trees, that the correlation between wind 
and trees, there isn't any, which is a contradiction. This is a data set over many hours, and I plot the instantaneous data and average it. The red is the unpruned state, and the blue is the pruned state. And you can see at some speeds, the pruned tree can actually have higher response, there's more load than the unpruned. If I average the data, I do get, on average, the unpruned tree had a higher wind load than the pruned tree. So if we treat the tree as a sale area, on average, yes, we can get that average trend in there. But instantaneously, I can take any data out of there and say, sometimes the pruned tree responded more than the unpruned tree. And I think what was happening there is the removal of the foliage removed the damping so that sometimes you've got a more enlivened tree and the thinning, although on average it works, it's not immediately clear that it's giving a good result. So that introduces the difference between statics and dynamics. And what does dynamics have that statics doesn't have? The particular thing is damping and inertia forces. They are present in dynamics and they are not present in statics. And the other thing that is curious and takes a little bit to get your head around is statics has one solution. We do a tree pull, we want to know how strong the tree is, is it safe? Dynamics has many solutions, both correct. It doesn't have one solution. Here is an image of a static analysis in which the largest load I found in the literature of 1,219 kilonewton metres was quoted. And you can see that image is based on a giant tree where the mass is mainly in the trunk and the canopy is small and has, uh, is represented without branches. Uh, here is some work from Broody uh, on the static pooling. This is the ISA publication and a computer analysis looks at that. We've got the wind on the left-hand side, we've got the tree, the computer analyzes each element and we get a certain force, 29 kilonewton meters, a certain lever arm, 505 kilonewton meters. And again, the canopy is treated as a lump mass and that's a static analysis. I won't go, I'll go fairly quickly through this. These are the numbers. This is about the largest you can do with a static pulling force. These are the wind forces I'm measuring. They're getting up. These are some static pull tests where we get failure. That was the number in Broody's publication from a computer. I am measuring up around here now uh, with subsequent data. And Australian Wind Code is calculating on trees about that. And there's the mathic point, which is way out there. So. One of the things that's coming out of this is we're getting some numbers to see what are the wind loads on trees. We can do that, and that's useful for design purposes. And the, the maximum I've ever measured was at Monash University on April the 2nd of 563 kilonewton metres. So the static pull is a fairly standard method. We apply a load to the tree with a rope. We measure the load, measure the root plate. Now, I'm not saying this is wrong and of no value. We do this. But what I'm saying is it's a static analysis and may not provide us with the answers that we want. Uh, and this is our um, work. We were doing some static pull tree pulling in, in uh, 
Brisbane. And there's the results. We can pull in two directions. We can measure the response of the tree if we pull in the north direction or in the east direction. And these are some new sensors that are giving us that instant output, which is uh, I'll talk about in a second. And from our pulling tests, we haven't done the thousands that uh, uh, the Germans report, but from ours, we do get a range of responses, and I plot the tilt angle and the load, and we are getting towards unstable trees, but we've never pulled to destruction yet. So it's that instability, where is that limit, that I would question mark at this stage. We need to get more verification of that of where failure occurs. This is the tipping curve that we're using, and it comes from a reference of Wesley in 1998, which is a basis for the German work. The angle that they define as the limit for their tilt is 0.25 degrees, which is down here. Now, just to briefly describe this, what's happening here is this is the failure load. So they don't put the load as a number. They say, OK, when it's failed, we call that 100%. Now remember that image of the humans I did? That's sort of making all the height 100%. So it doesn't take into account size difference. Small, medium, large, there's the failure. So it allows you to put all the data on one curve, which is useful. And they say the limit is 0.25 degrees because failure has occurred by one degree. So in we're using that as a limit Failure will have occurred at one degree. Now, one degree is very small. That doesn't mean it's actually tipped over. They're interpreting that as probably there's been some root failure occurring and it's led to instability and following that failure will occur. So we're saying if we can monitor that tilt and see that the tree is moving below that one degree of failure, that might be an indication of stability. And that's from a publication of Wesley and Irving, 1998. In addition to that, what the dynamics have is the damping and the inertia, and I mentioned there are two solutions, and there's an example where we've got two masses, and it's quite possible that the masses can move together and they can move apart. Now, both those solutions are correct. One isn't right and the other one isn't wrong. Both of these things can happen. And you probably scratch your head, well, what's that got to do with trees? So I put the masses in the form of a tree, just take two branches, for example. And what can happen with trees? There can be two solutions. Both branches can move together, or another solution, they can move apart. Now, obviously, trees are consisting of many, many branches, and there are many, many solutions in dynamics. And effectively, that's what's happening with trees. So here's another video, just then take that theory a little bit more and to look at the masses of the branches moving in what seems to be a chaotic pattern, but it's providing a detuning of the tree. So it's preventing that natural harmonics uh, occurring. I've also, just for fun, thought, well, if branches are so important, let's see what's happening to one branch. So we put the instruments on one branch, waited for a windstorm. Now there's the zero point. That's where the rest point is. And what happened with this branch for the entire storm, the movement of the branch was sideways and upwards. There was no downward motion of the branch for an entire windstorm. And the, the wind was coming from right to left on the screen there. So that was what the data was saying with me. Like, oh, I might have 
got the data upside down and I got it wrong. So I took a video, this is an image of Burnley College, notice the flat roof and the large magnolia there. I'd been waiting for a wind and the flat roof I used as a base tripod for the camera, so I'm sort of up in the canopy waiting for the wind to go by. I'll give you sound here. And more wind, the more the branch moved, but in the upwards direction. Again, I got sick of watching it, and for time constraints, you do it at two and three times the speed of the video. It should come in a second. There we go, or two and a half. And you can see more wind, more upwards movement. There is no downwards movement. And out of interest, you can see in the background the um, Italian cypress, the Cupressa sempervirens, and that's the tall, skinny tree with 72 to 1 ratio, height ratio. And it doesn't sway backwards and forwards in the wind either. So there's a lot of reference stuff in the background there too. But um, Now I'm not saying branches don't on some trees blow down, but by, by and large the ones I've measured are blowing upwards in the wind, which does introduce a question mark over weight reduction of branches. Not for ice and snow, but certainly for the dynamics in wind. Looking at wind measurement, there's been some um, interesting studies. Uh, this is Schonborn from Germany in, two, in uh, 2009. I don't know where he got the funding from, but he used 17 ultrasonic anemometers measuring at 10 hertz, 10 times a second, and placed them around a tree. And his conclusion was that there was a very weak correlation between wind speed and branch response. So he very intensively monitored the wind environment around the tree, but when you graph it, you can't get a response with the wind speed and the branch, well, tree and branch response. It's because of this dynamics and this phase and in phase and out of phase. So sway didn't directly correspond to wind speed instantaneously. So a method we're using is to average them out and uh, look at the tree response over a period of time. The wind speeds that are considered critical, this work has been published by Cullen, 2002 in the ISA, it's an excellent reference. Wind speed is difficult to measure, difficult to relate to uh, tree response, and even more difficult to convert from one unit to another. So North Americans in miles per hour, we're in kilometres per second. Scientific literature is in metres per second, and sailors and air aircraft people use uh, knots. So I put them all on the same scale and said, where do trees start breaking? And that's about where they start breaking. Where are big wind speeds? And that's some big wind speeds, Hurricane Hedden, Dennis, 185. But they're 10 minute average wind speeds and we get gusts which are measured at three second averages and we can get extreme gusts. So I pose the question, what does the tree have to survive? It has to survive the maximum. So I think when we're looking at risk analysis, we can manage up to a certain point but beyond that point in wind speed, we're going to get catastrophic failure. So I'm suggesting that some of this information gets integrated into risk management of trees and we cannot manage trees for extreme wind events. We can manage them up to manageable levels and that's where the engineering code comes in, where buildings are built with a strength criteria, not a failure criteria, up to a certain wind speed. So we can manage trees quite well up to a certain wind speed 
and if we get Hurricane Hedden coming through at, let's say, 240 kilometres an hour, 150 miles per hour, all bets are off. And I don't think there's going to be a liability if one tree that you've been managing fails and hundreds around you have gone. There's, there's no liability, but that's not integrated. Um, I'm just going to finish up, I've got about three minutes, I think, with some models. I'll go through this fairly quickly. I didn't want to get too theoretical today, but this is the start of the pole model where dynamics, if you go through the literature, starts. Canopies are represented as solid objects on them. There's no dynamics. Simple tree dynamics would introduce these as a single degree of freedom system. That was the pole swaying backwards and forwards. Now, a single degree of freedom system has to have a harmonic. It has a natural frequency. And if you use the data sets of those pole trees and the maths, you must come up with that answer. Where is the mass damping? I puzzled over that for a while. And the mass damping in that model isn't on that page. Cannot be found. Doesn't exist because the mass damper is another oscillating mass on the oscillating mass. So it's a mass on a mass. So this is the mass damper. If I take a pole, the branch is the mass damper. So these are the mass dampers and the branch is the mass damper. So the model is just a way of describing what happens in the physical world. The model is something we can put in the computer, the tree we can't. So that's the advantage of the model. And obviously trees have more than just a single branches and many, many branches and sub-branches and sub-branches. So the model I've published has a, a mass representing each branch, each sub-branch, each sub-sub-branch. And if you go right out to the edge, the damper would represent the leaf drag. So you can actually, with this model, represent each element down to up one leaf. Who's doing any work on that? Who would bother? There is actually some work being done in France, some excellent work using finite element techniques. And you can see that there is a reiteration, there's a replication in a tree, one branch, another branch, another branch, and same in the model, that we're really only dealing with a mass, a spring, and a damper. And we just have to reiterate that. So maybe with a finite element model, that would be advantageous. And again, just to finish up, what happens if you remove the branches? What happens if you remove the damping? And this is why dynamics is important. Would you like to see that again? So I haven't really been able to talk about the applications today, and there are lots of applications for climbers, for rigging, for tree removal. I was fortunate last year to be in Ohio for the Biomechanics Week and I chose a tree with many branches and I wanted to see how many branches you had to cut off before we got this situation occurring. And I was amused at the number of people walking past scratching their heads wondering what I was doing, but um, it did have a purpose. And I've submitted that for publication in the AUF journal. And just to show you that mass damping is not something way out of um, left field that, you know, why haven't we heard about this before? Mass damping has now become commonly used in engineering structures and is allowing large buildings to be built even taller than they ever have before and preventing large sways occurring. In a large building in Taiwan, Taipei 101 has a 730 tonne ball of steel 
hanging as a pendulum from the top floor and you can go and there's a viewing platform and you can actually watch it sway if you like going up there in a hurricane. It's not swaying, you are. As the building sways, it goes the other way. That's a mass damper. And that's a, just to give you an idea of the proportions of the mass. It's a very small proportion. It punches above its weight. The response is dramatic. It's being built into another building in Shanghai. These are now conventional methods of damping out vibrations. If, thank you, I've got two minutes. If you want to go to the Grand Canyon, which I do, and I like heights, go on that walk platform, it's stabilised with a mass damper. And now commonly used, a uh, very cheap mass damper is to have a half full tank of water, and these are providing services in high-rise buildings and tall buildings and providing the mass damping effect as well. Just to look at the current research, we're using new tilt sensors. Uh, I'm just finishing up on current research and where we're heading. These new tilt sensors are available uh, for $129 uh, off the shelf. Uh, we don't make them. From America, delivered to our door in Australia within a week. Uh, they measure acceleration. Gravity is an acceleration, so they respond as a tilt sensor. This has recently been up from a 12-bit to a 16-bit, meaning the sensitivity now is in the range of root plate tilt, and we're using it for that. And it measures the root plate tilt in three directions, and what we're doing is putting it on trees, waiting for a wind. This is the chip inside, and we're putting it on a tree, and we're not doing a pulling test. We're waiting for the wind to uh, measure what's happening. Sorry, waiting the wind to lay the tree, and we measure the root plate tilt. We've done about 150 trees and found only seven trees are moving outside that tipping curve limit. And we believe this is a direction that the dynamics is taking us with this new technology. And I've been asked questions like, uh, do you think every tree in a city will be monitored? And I'm thinking, well, maybe. Um, this technology, how are we going to adopt it? When you take your phone and you tip it round and the image changes, that's exactly the same technology. You've already got that technology in your phone. You've got GPS, you've got a, an accelerometer with tilt sensors already there. So the technology that we're using is actually out of date already. So we see this technology is coming in, as being simple, sim something simple to collect accurate data on tree stability that arborists can use and maybe in the future if it's microchipped like pets are, it'll become simple and cheap. We might be getting data from our trees on dynamic loads and stability that we can use as arborists. On that note, I'll, I'll end and thank you for your attention. This concludes Dr. Ken James' talk on applied biomechanics and dynamics in trees. If you'd like to learn more about biomechanics, you can find additional materials at the ISA web store, including the Tree Biomechanics DVD and Tree Structure and Mechanics Conference Proceedings. If you have recommendations for topics to cover in future podcasts in this series, please contact the ISA at elearning at isa-arbor.com. 
Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory, reminding you to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.